Welcome to this edition of the Forecast Direct podcast. I'm Leo Feller. I'm a senior economist with the UCLA Anderson Forecast. Uh, and my guest today is Professor Mine Sensis. Uh, Mine is uh, at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies, uh, where she teaches on trade and labor market issues. And I've been very fortunate to have her uh, as a co-author uh, during my academic history. So Mine, thanks so much and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, Mene. So you have this paper, which I actually think is a fascinating paper, um, and I'm a little envious that I'm not the one who wrote it. Um, but I'm, but I'm super proud of this paper uh, and, and watching, you know, the the way that you thought thought through some some really difficult issues. Uh, your paper is on immigration and the provision of public goods, evidence at the local level of the U.S. Um, in a few words, can you tell us about your paper? Um, thank you for the kind words. Um, and it builds on our earlier work, actually, so you get some of the credit already. So in this paper, we're looking at the arrival of immigrants, how it impacts local public finances and provision of locally provided public goods in the US. Um, so the idea of the paper is actually very, very simple. So if immigrants that arrive are different than their natives in terms of their skills, their arrival is going to result in changes in average per capita income in a locality. And that could be due to just compositional changes, or it could be due to changes in wages and housing prices, et cetera, in the locality. And then, of course, change in average incomes is going to have an effect on the local tax base uh, for sales, income, and property taxes. Um, and then the direction and the magnitude of the change is going to depend on the type of immigrants that come in, right? So skilled versus unskilled immigrants. And it's also going to depend on the response of the government, right? So the local government can respond by adjusting taxes, adjusting benefits, uh, choosing what type of services they want to fund, um, and also the response of the federal and the state governments, right? So they could fully or partially offset the, uh, the effect on the local government, local uh, on the locality, right? So what we find is that these effects um, on average are very, very small in the US, but happens to be very uneven across different localities in the US. All right, so let's, let's dig into that. Why, why are they different and uneven across uh, localities in the US, right? So you mentioned in your paper that you find different effects of whether a locality is receiving uh, low-skilled uh, immigrants or high-skilled immigrants why should the effects differ? And can you provide a sense of the magnitudes of the differences? Yeah, sure. Um, so it, it, so let's take high-skilled immigrants. When high-skilled immigrants come into a locality, they're going to increase the average income in that locality. Uh, and that's gonna increase the, improve the local tax base, yeah? So that's just because of compositional differences. But it could also be the case that, for example, uh, they have an effect on the housing market, right? So they, de they demand higher prices, single family homes in the suburbs and high performing school districts, et cetera. So that increases the average price of the houses um, and that could increase, uh, improve the property tax base in the locality, right? Um, so, and, the, and you would think that the effect could be up the opposite for low skilled immigrants, right? So they have lower than average income. So when they come, they, um, they decrease the average income and deteriorate the, lo uh, the, the local tax base. So that's one channel. Um, it could also be the case that uh, immigrants, different type of immigrants, affect price of certain services, right? providing certain services. So for example, if the immigrants come in and they work as teachers, nurses, bus drivers, and custodians in local schools, that would decrease the price of providing that type of services. 
um, also like uh, different different services provided at the local level differ a lot in terms of how much they rely on federal and state funding. So some services might be much more sensitive to local shocks than other services, right? The, the state and federal government might provide the buffer. So that's all on the supply side. And also you can imagine a situation where uh, low and high skilled immigrants differ a lot in terms of type of services that they demand, right? Um, so um, if, if they're poorer on average, for example, the, the immigrants that come in, that might they might uh, demand more uh, public housing, um, or they might have more kids that might, uh, that might increase demand for public education, etc. Yeah. And, and finally, uh, the response of the natives might be quite different for high skilled versus uh, low skilled immigrants, right? So there are many reasons why you might expect the effect to be very different at the local level for high and low skilled immigrants. And US localities differ a lot in terms of what type of immigrant state they attract. So that causes the unevenness. Can you give us a sense of the magnitudes, right? So if you receive low skilled immigrants, what does this do to your property tax base, uh, your revenues, your expenditures? If you receive high skilled immigrants, what does this tend to do to your uh, revenue and expenditures? And we're talking here just to, to kind of clarify per capita, right? So when we think about per capita expenditures, that helps us understand how the average gets affected, right? Because you're getting more people and you're dividing this tax base now amongst more people. Um, and it depends on whether or not uh, you have, you know, high wage or low wage individuals contributing to the, the, the taxes. Exactly. So, um, so let me just give you this number. So between 1990 and 2010, the share of low skilled immigrants has increased on average by about three percentage points. Um, this results in a relative decline in per capita owned revenues by about 8.4% and a decline in per capita expenditures by 5.6%. So, um, and opposite is true for high skilled immigrants. So the, uh, the, the increase in high skilled immigrants was about 1.8 percentage point, And that corresponds to about 6% increase in both uh, locally generated revenue and uh, per capita general expenditures. So these look big in terms of percentages, but very small actually in terms of dollar values, about like $119 per, per capita, right? Um, and when, and it looks like on average, these two offset each other. Um, so the, the overall effect of immigrants during this time is about 0.5% decline in uh, general expenditures. So it's interesting to know that it evens itself out, right? Based on you know how you're getting low skilled versus high skilled immigrants. Um, I want to take a moment. How do you define low and high skilled here, right? And the reason that I think this is important is, you know, when I'll give you you know the example from my family from Brazil. Um, you know, my parents are high skilled in Brazil, but when they came to the U.S., you know, their qualifications didn't count. Right. So you can't be a doctor in Brazil and then immediately become a doctor in the U.S. You can't be a lawyer in Brazil and immediately become a doctor in the U.S. And so they went from being high skilled in Brazil to being low skilled in the U.S. Right. How, how do we think about skill in this sense? And how do we think about the time frame, perhaps, that it takes for someone to go from being, you know, a low skilled recent immigrant to, you know, being a high skilled immigrant that has been here for maybe, you know, uh, some period of time where it's taken them, uh, you know, 
a few years to develop their skill set here in the U.S. and to become a high-skilled worker in the U.S.? That, that's a very good question, Leo. Um, so we are, we are somewhat binded in this case by data, right? So the way we classify immigrants is um, we define an immigrant as high-skilled if they have at least college degree and low-skilled if they are, they are less than college. So in your example, your parents would be classified as high-skilled although they would not be um, doing occupations where those skills are used, right? But this is actually one advantage of our study um, as opposed to a structural model, for example, uh, because we rely uh, our inference on data. So the fact that your parents would be working in occupations that does not fit their degree, hence presumably earning lower wages than they otherwise would, and hence would be uh, contributing less to the tax base if they were working as doctors, right? Would be reflected in our analysis, right? So if some of the immigrant skills are not utilized immediately, we would actually see that as they're earning lower wages and hence um, contribution to the tax base is lower than it otherwise would be. So now let's, you know, let's think about the notion of time because you, you have this, but you have this by looking at second generation immigrants, right? So it's hard to look at first generation immigrants and say, okay, well, first, when first generation immigrants arrive, right, maybe they are low skilled, maybe they earn low wages. It takes them a while to kind of climb up the, uh, the social ladder. Um, but you then have this measure of second generation, right? So these are people, you know, like myself, whose parents came to the US and we've been here for some time. Um, there's work by, uh, Leah Bustan and, and Ran uh, Abramitsky, uh, a book called Streets of Gold that we actually featured uh, on the UCLA Anderson uh, Forecast Direct as well. Um, and they see that second generation immigrants tend to do pretty well, much better than their parents and much better than the native population, right? So the average second generation immigrant tends to be doing better than the average American, right? And so can you talk a little bit about that and this notion of, right, there's going to be some effects on the local economy of immigrants coming in, but if you wait long enough, what are the effects? Um, I'm so glad you asked because I think this is a very important point. So the, the, the main results that I talked about all focus on the first generation, right? So we actually look at whether your parents are foreign born or not, and um, say you're an immigrant if your one of your, at least one of your parents is foreign born, and then look at the effect um, over 10 year changes between 1990 and 2010, right? Um, but it is very important to look at the second generation because you don't wanna have a short-sighted view about your immigration policy, yeah? Um, and so here again, we, we have a little bit of data cons uh, constraint. It's very hard to identify whether you're second generation or not in the census because they don't ask about your parents where they were born. So the way we do this is we, check whether um, you speak a language other than English at home. Um, and this is an imperfect proxy, right? Because it would miss immigrants from uh, English speaking countries, or it would miss, miss the second generation uh, who speak a different language at home, right? Um, but but it, is, it is the best we have. And what we find is actually very, very consistent with what you suggested um, and, and earlier work, right? So we find that, um, while second generation immigrants have a positive and significant impact on per capita owned revenues, 
their in effect is insignificant and small in magnitude on per capita expenditures, right? So in a way, they're sort of compensating for any negative effects the first generation immigrants might have um, and making the, the, the effect on expenditures much smaller for them if you, um, if you blindly just look at first generation. So I love that. That's that's really fascinating because it, you know, it kind of suggests that oftentimes immigration is an investment, right? And when you have low-skilled or high-skilled immigrants coming into the U.S., right, we as a country have this fantastic education system. We have, uh, you know, entrepreneurialism. We have credit markets. We have a great legal system. And what that means is that we give opportunities to immigrants that might not exist in their countries that then allow them to do well. It just takes some time, right? Exactly. It might take a generation for that to happen. And, and what it seems like you're showing here is that, all right, there's, there's maybe an immediate effect, right? That we as a society that invest in lower income, lower skilled uh, immigrants that are coming in, uh, we take a little bit of a hit to do that, but in the end it pays off because the future generations uh, tend, you know, tend to do pretty well. And that the cost you pay is not that high, right? So average right. results are very, very small. Right. So then the next question here, which is, we've seen something really interesting happen in the U.S., right, in terms of domestic migration, which is now that we can work remotely, you know, I can pick up and leave, you know, high-skilled, expensive Los Angeles or San Francisco or, you know, New York, and I can move to rural Tennessee. Right. And so the same way that you're looking at international migration, what are your thoughts about, you know, how this relates to domestic migration as we have this reshuffling of high skilled workers from, you know, these knowledge centers to throughout the U.S. because of the ability of, of hybrid working? So we cannot explicitly test this. And what you're asking is a very important question that I think we need to tackle in, in a future paper. Um, my hunch is that the effect of low skilled people coming in as a first order effect, it's not gonna be different if they're natives coming in versus if they're foreigners coming in, right? So the initial effect, the channel that I talked about, the average incomes change, and that has an effect on tax base, that has to be pretty similar for natives versus immigrants, yeah? There are a couple places that I can think of a difference, right? So the magnitude of the estimates could be different for natives versus immigrants. So for example, um, immigrants might not be immediately eligible for certain public services, right? This could be by law or it could be because they don't have access to information. So they can't immediately go sign up for something that's available, right? Or it could be because um, due to language or cultural barriers, some occupations are not open to them or the latter is sort of shorter for them. So, um, so they might be stuck in certain occupations. Or it could be the case that for like your parents, they are overqualified for the initial jobs that they do. Um, and then so they might, they might um, have a much, much um, better prospects of career after a couple of years um, than an unskilled worker coming into the US, right? So uh, there are certain differences that I can think of that would affect the magnitude, but overall channel, I don't think it would be different. And, and one more channel that would be different is um, the native response could be quite different, right? So the political economy effect of uh, newcomers would be very different if the newcomers look different than, um, or they're American. 
So last question here to kind of uh, wrap things up, right? There, there are ways I think your paper can be misinterpreted. And, you know, what, what is kind of the interpretation you want readers and listeners to take away from your paper? Um, so a couple of things, and I'm glad you asked this because I think it's very important to frame the frame what we find right, uh, correctly, right? So um, as you suggested, there are many, many well-documented benefits of immigration, yeah? And you summarized them very well. But we also know that there has been increasing public apprehension against immigration. And that was very much evident in President Trump's election campaign and the Brexit vote and recent vote in Finland, Italy, et cetera, right? So, and this could all be because people like to blame people who look different than them, right? So that could be one explanation for the sentiment. But when you actually ask voters why they don't want immigration, they, they, they talk about things like, they worry about wage and employment effect on natives, and they worry about the welfare state, the quantity and quality of the public goods. Um, they talk about overcrowding of schools and higher taxes and all of that, right? So the first part of that, the labor market effects, the literature has done a lot of work. We have a good understanding of what that looks like. The second part of that concern, we haven't done much and we don't know much about, right? And I think it's very important as economists, as part of our jobs to take these concerns seriously and quantify it to see if there's anything there or if there's sort of like an idea that's not, that's not right in the data, right? And if it is correct, it is sort of important to figure out how big these effects are. Um, and, if, and, and, and if it is big, sort of um, propose policies that might address some of these issues, right? So um, I think it's very important because some of this nuance gets lost in the public discourse, right? So it's important to figure out, are the effects different for high versus low skilled immigrants? Is it different uh, depending on the locality that immigrants arrive? Or over what duration as we talked about? Or difference between the first and second generation? Or different institutions governing public finances? All of this vary a lot. And we need to understand where it really bites and where it doesn't, right? And I think this is super important because um, given, the, given the push against immigration, I worry that if we don't take some of these voter concerns seriously, a more drastic and harmful policy like building a wall and banning all immigration is going to happen. Right? So I think it's our job to take these concerns seriously um, and, and, and address them to the extent we can so that we can reap the benefits from, from immigration, which are very well documented. Yeah, and I think this is why I'm, I'm such a fan of this paper, even though when I when I first read it, I'm like, oh, it's saying something about low-skilled immigrants creating this, you know, drain on per capita resources in a locality. And, and my initial take was, you know, ouch, right? That's 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 a that's a harsh finding. Um, but I agree with you that, you know, it offers this perspective, which is, you know, we 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 have various systems of government. We have local government, state government, federal government. Um, when we think about the paper that you and I wrote together on trade shocks, what's the effect of opening up, uh, you know, trade barriers, uh, reducing trade barriers with, for trade with China? One of the things that we examined is that there are certain localities that are going to be disproportionately harmed by that kind of competition, even though consumers as a whole throughout the U.S. will benefit. And one of the things that we look at there is that there's actually a federal system of transfers 
that insures against some of these shocks, right? So social security, uh, if people retire early because they've lost their job, you know, at a manufacturing plant that's now competing with China, their income is insured through social security, through unemployment insurance, through, you know, disability benefits, through lots of federal transfers. And there doesn't seem to be, you know, that much of a national policy to help insure the local finances of cities and counties that are welcoming and embracing a lot of the low-skilled immigrants that are coming in, right? They're, they're not eligible for the kind of social security, right, that you get when, you know, you're a longtime U.S. worker in a manufacturing plant that faces trade competition. And so I think what you raise is this really important question, which is, you know, there is something there. It's not a huge amount of money, but at the local level, it creates concern. And if as a national government, we want to have a policy that's a little bit more embracing of low-skilled immigration um, and high-skilled immigration and refugees and people seeking asylum, right, one of the things that we have to consider is, well, you know, how do we help the local governments that are actually taking, taking these people in? So, Mine, you know, a, a, a tremendous, you know, kudos to you and your, your co-authors for, you know, for putting together this very important paper, very well-researched. Um, something that I'm like, wow, you know, I think you guys really made a, a convincing argument. Uh, and so, so very well done and congratulations and, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Leo.